does it mean to be politically homeless? Well, my guest on the podcast today describes herself this way, and she says that her tribe is tribeless. I relate a lot. This month at Lean Out, I've been speaking with independent journalists who are changing the media landscape. Today's guest is an opinion writer that always makes me think and laugh. Bridget Fetisi is a comedian and podcaster. She's a columnist and contributing editor at The Spectator and a host of the show's Dumpster Fire, Walk-Ins Welcome, and Factory Settings. Her substack is called Beyond Parody. Bridget Fetisi is my guest today on Lean Out. Bridget, welcome to Lean Out. Thank you for having me. So nice to have you on. I follow your work very closely. I feel like you are a kindred spirit and uh, I'm excited to get to speak with you. I know. I loved the podcast we did. People, I still am hearing from it. People were very appreciative of our conversation about hip hop and media. (laughs) (laughs) We had lots to talk about then. I'm sure we will have lots to talk about today too. Um, I want to start with the concept of politically homeless, which we will come back to. But but first, you come from the progressive left. Mm-hmm. You, and I want to read a quote from one of your essays in The Spectator. I grew up in a liberal home, surrounded by liberals in a liberal pocket of America. My exposure to differing political views was limited. And by the time I came to Los Angeles, listening to NPR was my personality. Yes. So for people who, who don't know, what was the turning point? When did you start questioning the left? I think it was weirdly around the Trump era. I mean, it was 2015, but it was really before Trump. I think I I hadn't really paid much attention to politics. I was very much what I call a factory settings voter. I just vote showed up and voted the way I always was kind of raised to vote. And it was the only the only way I could ever conceive of voting was blue all the way across the board. And I definitely thought the world was ending when Bush was elected, the Bush, you know, little Bush <laughs> and W. And I, I think some of it's just age that there's that age old, the saying, if you're, you're conservative, when you're young, you have no heart. And if you are a liberal when you're older, you have no brain or whatever that that saying is. And then I think just being at the intersection of comedy and working at Playboy in 2015, when a lot of the, what I guess we would call now cancel culture stuff started happening. Me Too movement was really ramping up from 2013. And then around comedy, it was getting very crazy. People were were saying they couldn't make jokes like they used to be able to make jokes. And so I just happened to be in those spaces. And I really joke that I stumbled kind of out of a blackout into the culture wars because I was waiting tables and just trying to survive. 
I didn't go to college, so I wasn't indoctrinated into a lot of the ideologies that are kind of pervasive everywhere now. And I just started writing for Playboy, which put me very online in the very online people as as we are when we have to start slinging our wares on in social media. And I got particularly hooked on Twitter in like 2013. And I remember like the first time I realized I didn't know anything <laughs> or anything that I thought I knew was when I was writing for Playboy, there was another mass school shooting. And obviously I had a very intense emotional reaction to that. And I started kind of mouthing off on Twitter and my audience, which was very much male, kind of red-blooded American from writing at Playboy, pushed back thoughtfully, but in a pretty strong way. And I asked people to email me their thoughts on the gun debate in America. And I got long essays, really thoughtful essays from people. And as I was reading them, I was like, I don't know anything. I don't know how to hold a gun. I don't know how to shoot a gun. I don't know how long it takes to get a gun in California. I didn't know anything for me to be just running my mouth about any of this with no knowledge of any. It was a completely emotional, uninformed opinion. And I feel like that was really the first time that I started questioning my own belief system or what I thought I believed and how I had come to these conclusions that I came to. Were they actually informed or were they just emotional opinions that I'd held for so long? I never even thought to question them. It's interesting. I mean, the Me Too era certainly was a time of big questioning for a lot of us who are feminists. Yeah, that too. I know for you as well. Yeah. And I started getting pushback from the left when I would put articles out that I that was unexpected to me. So I would put an article out. One, for example, was about why I liked giving blowjobs. And I thought I would get rah-rah feminism from my side. But then a lot of the newer, younger feminists were saying that I had kind of internalized the patriarchy. I always joke literally. <laughs> um, <laughs> and that that I was just operating under the male gaze. I had never heard any of these terms. Male gaze, pa patriarchy I'd probably heard, but I don't think in any real serious, you know, academic context. And then I did another one that was um, women date assholes because you're a pussy. And I, again, <laughs> thought I would hear from the right wing, which I did. The man, the manosphere came for me. And the left wing came for me because I was using terms like real man and, you know, beta male and alpha male. And a lot of it was tongue in cheek, but still they, they've definitely came after me. That was surprising. So I realized that I was not really, I didn't feel like I belonged anywhere. And that sense only increased more and more and more over the course of like the next five years, moving forward from 2015 through even 2021, mm. even now. 
Mm-hmm. I, f- I feel like there are more of us now, or at least more of us who are out, but that sense, I felt very isolated in 2015. I ha- had there not been Twitter and the internet and me finding people online who were pushing back against some of the extremism on the left wing, I don't think I would have felt like I was sane. I kind of felt like I was losing my mind. Hmm. Yeah, I I really relate to that too. Um, I want to tease a couple of threads from kind of big moments from this year. One of those is Louise Perry's book, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. I know you interviewed her. I interviewed her as well. And this book, as you point out in your spectator piece, is dedicated to the women who have learned the hard way. Mm-hmm. And you wrote this really brave, really moving piece about regretting promiscuity and that, you know, making the argument that freedom that liberal feminism has offered us has has come at a price. And mm-hmm. um, you say the dark side of the sexual revolution is that even though it liberated women, unyoking sex from consequences has primarily benefited men. Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, that's been a long journey. And honestly, part of the reason that I've been thinking a lot about this, because I've been writing even more extensively now, probably a whole, hopefully book around a lot of these ideas, how I felt about men versus how I feel about men. And at the end of Louise Perry's book, she says, listen to your mother. You know, that's kind of her final conclusion. And so much of my resistance to a lot of the things I'm coming to terms with is having to admit not only was my mom right in some respects, but conservatives (laughs) or even some of the worst dudes on the internet. Some of the, the, so much of my promiscuity was a reaction to feeling, as I mentioned in my piece, feeling kind of guilty about sex, whether it's from Catholicism, feeling repressed from the society, feeling like there's a double standard that I thought was BS. And so it was very much a reaction and didn't necessarily come from a place of health. It came even more from a place of trauma and trying to unpack all of that. And then being online and having these like men's rights activists saying things like, oh, this is just, she's just an alpha widow. And she's, you know, a classic girl who probably has a stepdad and is messed up. And, you know, it's like, sometimes the the trolls are right. (laughs) What's an alpha widow? An alpha widow is a woman who is of average sexual market value who goes after men of high sexual market value and maybe ignores men who are at her level, her sexual market value in an attempt to chase these men who are of higher sexual market value, but have no intention of settling down with her. And therefore she kind of widows herself to this alpha male that she's constantly chasing. That's the, (laughs) 
That's the theory. <laughs> Describes an awful lot of people that I know in the contemporary dating market. I mean, isn't that what the apps are designed to do? Is basically that? Well, and if you talk to anybody about what the sexual revolution actually did, like I had a great conversation with Chris Williamson about this. There's it benefits men because if you are a woman who's maybe doesn't want to sleep around or isn't promiscuous, how are you even going to compete in this sexual market? And there's more, the top 20% of men are, you know, they, they have the pool of kind of everybody fighting over them. And so they can be much choosier than women in many instances. And he, yeah, he does a lot of really interesting interviews and research Chris Williamson around this topic of like how how this is benefiting primarily men in in general and it's it's not it's not optimistic for you know like I, I always say most of the best women I know are single the most interesting loving nurturing got their shit together women are single and have largely in many cases opted to just completely check out of the dating world. Yeah. And as you say, I mean, I've seen that dynamic a lot as well. I've also seen the dynamic of if there's 20% of the alpha males doing all the dating on the apps, that means that 80% of those men on the apps are, are not doing hardly any dating at all. Right. And are really suffering. And I know I've heard you say before that writing for Playboy, you learned a lot about how our sexual culture doesn't work for men. What are what are some of the things you learned about that? Well, I don't think all men want to just spread their seed as as much as that's maybe what the evolutionary biologists want to say. And maybe maybe like the common, the mean perhaps is that most guys kind of want to sleep around this idea. But what I learned from Playboy is that that's not actually true. Men suffer consequences from sleeping around in similar emotional ways, feelings of emptiness, feelings like they're not being valued or that they're valuing their self. They're not finding and attracting the right kinds of people if they're engaging in that kind of behavior that's kind of promiscuous and a lot of drinking often goes hand in hand with that culture. And I also think that men aren't, they're not really able to say that, you know, it's, it, there's much more of a stigma. Interestingly enough, when I wrote that piece, so many women reached out to me and gay men and they were like, I feel you, <laughs> you know, like the, you, I could have written this. Thank you for articulating like people told me they brought it into their therapists and, oh my and gosh. it was like, it's cra It was a crazy reaction that that piece got from men. I often heard either the effects this had on someone they knew how it was like a sister or a mother or an ex-girlfriend who perhaps was engaged in that, the sluttiness and or they regretted not sleeping with more women. Their regret was kind of the opposite. They hadn't slept with as many women as they had wished before they settled down or or whatever. So that was interesting. That was interesting to me too, because I think I think that they're like if you have 80% of the women going after 20% of the men. And yes, a lot of men are gonna be left out of that equation. And and we're seeing, I think the repercussions of that too, just because there's not, I don't think it's good when 
either when people are lonely, basically, but I, I do think there's been enough studies on young, single populations of men that can't find women. I know they have this problem in China, too, just by sake of, you know, killing all the girls. <laughs> just that just that small fact. That's a small factor. <laughs> I was like, how do I put this like I, nicely? But there's really no way. <laughs> um, just switching gears for a moment to to another one of the big stories of the year, Twitter and Elon Musk. Uh, you had some hilarious advice for him recently. Don't get high on your own supply. <laughs> this this really... one is me if I if I took over Twitter and had and was the richest woman in the world. <laughs> It's like that scene in Scarface where he's just sitting in front of a mound of cocaine on the desk and he's like about to put his head in it. It's just <laughs> that's how I feel about Elon. It's it's funny how much he's on there. He it's, it was always funny to me how much he was already on there because I'm like, you're why any billionaire? I'm like, why are you on here? why if I had billions of dollars I mean I've said this on Rogan I'm like if I had billions of dollars I'd be I wouldn't be on there he's like yeah right you'd be off for like two days and then you'd be back on there <laughs> I was like fair enough he called me out <laughs> but it, it didn't it seemed like they had better things to do like finding ways to get to Mars and building you know cars and stuff i'm like we're just idiots on online why are you why are you the richest smartest man on the planet here and then he bought it and that seems like we're living or was kind of forced to buy it and that's where it seems like we're living in a simulation <laughs> like how is this even real this person and now it's interesting to see just the shakeup of having him be in charge and how certain. I just wish there was a way we could like parallel universe sliding door into the opposite. If the if and if at any point the opposite party was doing the thing. What the other party would be doing even today with the Brittany Greer, Grenier, is that her name? Brittany, the WNBA star who just traded an arms dealer for her release. And, you know, conservatives are all outraged and Democrats are all excited. And I just wonder if the if it was Trump who was doing this, for example, what what this would look like, mm. what the outrage would look like. And with Elon, that seems interesting, too. I mean, even yesterday, something came out that the like housing board was going to go check on the beds because he had some beds put into Twitter so people could sleep there when they were working late nights. And and they wanted to make sure that it was all up to code or something. I'm like, you guys have legalized open drug markets mm. and you have people literally ODing in your streets probably you have to step over them to get into Twitter HQ and this is this is the guy you're going to go after just seems it does seem like he's riling up a lot of people but he's also kind of exposing them mm. them being the people who have maintained control of the narrative to this 
to the extent that they have the left. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, speaking of that, we saw Matt Taibbi release files and we know uh, that we'll be hearing from Barry Weiss pretty soon as well, because apparently she has some of these documents as well. What have you made? I mean, we saw mainstream media journalists just line up to heap scorn on Matt Taibbi. I know. Who I think is one of the best journalists of our generation. He's so great. What do you make of that? That's, again, I wonder if we could like sliding door into another alternate universe where the other side was doing something. It's that it really does show me and probably you and most people who I think are politically homeless or and particularly the conservatives. But this is all stuff we kind of intuited or already knew. But to see the they cannot stand not having control of the narrative. I always called it like the approved message when I didn't know when I was stumbling into the culture wars and I kept bumping up against this invisible wall I didn't understand that there was an approved message that you can you either kind of toe that line or you go start a substack. You know, you're either in the mainstream media and you have to all pair it or in the same with comedy. It's the same in Hollywood. We see it in all of the major institutions. You've seen teachers be witch hunted off of their campuses. I mean, Gosh, I think of like Brett Weinstein and Heather Hying and their experience on Evergreen. And it's, it seems positively quaint at this point, although they were absolutely like the canaries in the coal mine. They mm. were, they were like, this is coming everywhere. It's not just going to stay on the campuses, this kind of stuff. And it certainly hasn't. So I, I think too, like this. I always call them journalists. It's like the weird activism that's taken over almost everything, but particularly journalists have been captured so much by this ideology. They reverse engineer everything so that it just fits what they want to be true instead of what might actually be true. And... I don't think it's good. You know, it's obviously not good for journalism. I think you you go into journalism if you're curious and have a lot of questions. And that's what I like about Matt. Some of the stuff he was writing during the Trump campaign in particular was so insightful. And no one was writing this stuff. No one was saying like he has a huge following. There are grievances. There was a referendum that occurred overnight that nobody voted on. And it was when we exported all of our jobs out, when we started outsourcing everything and people are mad about this and they didn't have any say in this. It wasn't some kind of vote that they could take. And this is their protest vote or they really like the guy or no one, no one on the left was saying that you didn't hear that perspective at all. It was just like, Oh, look at this buffoon. Mm. He doesn't stand a chance. (laughs) (laughs) And then the big shock that he wins, right? Oh, it was hilarious. I do jokes about that. I'm like, were planes flying after Trump won? It was like (laughs) 9-11 around here. (laughs) Dead silent. You could hear like a pin drop in this city. (laughs) (laughs) Another thing I wanted to ask you about, this is going back to like 
I guess maybe February, something like that of last year was, was the Spotify and Joe Rogan story. That one I found really mind boggling. You see Neil Young threatening to pull all his music saying that Joe Rogan is, you know, perpetuating misinformation and there's this huge controversy. And again, like so many people in the mainstream media, I'm reading the tweets. I don't think any of them have ever sat through an entire episode of Joe Rogan. And I just wonder, like, when you look back on that and think through it, you're friends with him, you've been on that show. How do you kind of digest that whole controversy? I mean, it's so, first of all, infantilizing. It's like, oh, we need to think for you. This is the general thing that I think people are reacting to on a visceral level that the mainstream and Hollywood does not understand. They have this attitude of, we know what's best for you, poor little plebs who can't think for yourselves. And they don't even realize that they're taking that smug tone. And I remember when I was home one year and it was right before the election and a family member told me they were voting for Trump and I was surprised. And he was like, I'm just so fucking sick of the media talking down to me. And it was really eye-opening for me because I, I was like, yeah, they they really do. You know, if you go back and watch like Bill Maher, any of the late night shows pre-Trump, the the level of smug is so completely off the charts. And just looking down at the voters, looking down at anybody who might think of voting for them, this certainty that they could never lose. It was it was gross. And it was the same thing with Spotify and Joe Rogan. I'm like, you guys don't understand. This man has an audience because he thinks for himself. He's curious. He admits when he messes up. He's not trying to be an authority. He's not trying to tell people how they should think. He's not talking down to his audience. He's just having conversations with people and you cannot handle that you can't wrangle him. Like he's out of your control and too big to fail and they could not handle it. And people make up their own minds about things. It's insane to me that you couldn't ask questions about a brand new vaccine that the mainstream all got on board with this as misinformation or disinformation. People were even asking questions. I brought up that my period was weird and I got called a conspiracy theorist and a right wing nut job and all of this stuff. And then, you know, a year later it comes out, oh, just, yeah, the periods are affected by these vaccines. It doesn't last long, but turns out all those women weren't just crazy. And that's the other thing you're telling a bunch of people that that's the other weird thing that bothers me is for all of the lip service about the lived experience of people, it it's all just BS. It's only the lived experience of the people when it benefits you having power. <laughs> if, if it doesn't, if it's the lived experience of me and the vaccine and my period, and it goes against whatever you want to believe or you need to push, then it's disregarded. If it's the lived experience of a Muslim woman, and her experience with a hijab, then it's Islamophobic if if it goes against your belief that or whatever you whatever you have to be pushing that day. So I think that you saw, you know, this intense like reaction to him. There was a big void that needed to be filled in those interim year, that year when Trump got banned from all social media, which is still crazy to me. And then 
there is this huge void. I think Elon's kind of taking up a lot of that oxygen now. He's like the the main character of of the year. And so that timing just happened to fall on Joe too, where he just was also like, he took on kind of outsized influence. I'm like, people aren't taking medical advice from Joe Rogan. You know, they're, 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 they're just not. Where is the article too? Show me the article where it's like, my uncle died because he listened to Joe Rogan. If this is as big a problem you journalists are saying that it is go find the not just anecdotal information that proves your point that this is like a dangerous podcast it's just not it's not it's not true because it doesn't exist mm. and being his friend too i would people kept asking me to like comment on, i was like i'm just i'm not commenting on this i'm not going to write an article so that I can generate clicks for my sub stack. I just, I'm his friend. I support him. And I I don't think he's doing anything differently than what he's always already done. And like Neil Young, you are, it's so sad for me to see these aging boomers who sold their entire catalog for like hundreds of millions of dollars acting like they're the moral, you know, arbiters of what is information I'm like you used to be a hippie a counterculture <laughs> hippie what happened to you now you're just like the man so weird that was just so that was just so weird all these boomers with their multi-millions being like i'm taking my music away okay this is like your final protest is in line with big government and big pharma and big media Congratulations. You've completely sold out. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder, I mean, we've just lived through this hugely extreme era in media, I guess, living through it. COVID was such a bizarre time to be a working journalist. I have never felt so uh, perplexed by how little questioning took place during, during, especially during the first, I'd say like year and a half. There was a piece that came out recently, Emily Oster in the Atlantic arguing for pandemic amnesty, saying that we need to forgive each other for the mistakes during COVID. When you sort of look at how everything has gone, I know Mary Harrington and Unheard recently wrote about this and the class politics that played into all of this, the corruption of the scientific process, the lack of critical thinking, like, how do you think as a media, we come back from that? Yeah, you don't. I mean, they don't. I don't, I don't, I think people have found individuals that they trust and you try to cultivate, you try to cultivate an audience and you do everything in your power to, to hold yourself accountable so that you can maintain their trust because the trust is broken and it continues to, I mean, we're talking about going back into masks here in LA today. You know, this, this discussion is still going on and I, I don't know. It's, I think it's, you keep seeing these kind of final nails in the coffin. The whole, I think recently to the, SBF FTX scandal is mm. and the fact that they're not the, the like softball interviews that the media has been doing with this guy who basically ran a huge Ponzi scheme and swindled billions of dollars out of people. 
it's mind boggling to me. I I don't know. They don't just the mainstream media does not deserve our trust and they would have to earn it. That piece was by Emily Oster was bothersome because I don't see anyone atoning for anything or making amends or even apologizing. So before there's any sense of forgiveness, there has to be some kind of apology, but there hasn't been any any sense that perhaps we did something wrong or any kind of reflection, nothing. It's just, oh, and now you need to forgive us, which implies that something was wrong, but there's never been an admission of guilt. So Mm. people reacted very strongly to that piece, rightfully so. They were like, get out of here. You're basically admitting that some of the things probably could have been done better. And and look, it was a fast-moving pandemic. Nobody knew what was happening. It was confusing. I try to give people the benefit of the doubt to say in the early days, weeks, months, we didn't know a lot of information and they were just doing the best that they could trying to keep people safe with not that much information. That changed pretty quickly, though. We knew a lot about the virus within the first couple of months. We knew, you know, you couldn't really get it from surfaces. We knew it's just all the stuff with the kids. I the, the stuff with the kids is the most upsetting. The conversation being centered around, you know, what was best for the teachers instead of the children was weird to me. That was always very strange. I'm like, why, why is this conversation only taking into consideration the teachers and not what's best for the children who far outnumber the teachers? And now we're seeing the effects of all of that and the economy, the supply chain. It's just a very weird time. It's been a weird time to be pregnant. It's like there's a mm. formula shortage. When I first had my baby, there was a formula shortage. Now she's seven months old and RSV, we have this triple demic because all the kids were masked for two years and didn't get exposed to anything. So they're all getting super sick this year with the flu and RSV and coronavirus or COVID and whatever it's called. (laughs) And we don't have, we have like medicine shortages. So there's no, you can't get baby Tylenol anywhere. You can't get a lot of the antibiotics that you need. It's just so crazy to me. I can't, it's a very strange time to be, And I don't know if this is just like the residual effects of everything being shut down. I know we get a lot of that stuff from China. I I don't know. I'm not really a supply chain expert, so I have no idea what what's causing this. But it it has been a very weird. Yeah, I keep saying to my husband, I'm like, we're going to look back on this time and be like, whoa, that was so weird. Hopefully, hopefully things don't just continue to descend into more and more shortages and and like Mm. madness. One of the things that I find so concerning is just the divide between public and private life that, 
you know, we're speaking freely right now. We're having the conversation, but in a lot of the media, what you hear in the media is totally divorced from what you would hear in your day-to-day life around a kitchen table. And part of, I think, how that was really underlined for me is once I came to Substack, I started getting so much mail from the public. Mm. I've never in my career gotten this much mail. And so you get such a huge range of views and you really realize how much is going unrepresented in the media. I know that you get a lot of mail too. coming back to this idea of politically homeless. You're doing this wonderful series right now at Substack. Tell me a little bit about some of the the letters that have really kind of stood out for you. What stands out to me is how confused people are. People are very conflicted. They'll often be inconsistent even within their own letter. And I think it's very human to just feel like maybe something was in your power and you're blaming someone else. Maybe they're just so real. You know, people will write me these long essays about their whole kind of political journey. And what's fascinating to me is what is that tipping point for a person? We so many people, but it also kind of skews my own perception I've been wrong about a lot of things, partially because I think I'm hearing from a lot of people who are leaving the left. I'm not hearing as much from people who are sick of the right, or maybe those people just the independent voters are a mystery to me. But reading these letters, which do come from mostly independent voters, I'm like, this is why you can never predict what the independent voters are going to do, because they don't really know what they're going to do. And one of the criticisms that people were giving of the most recent letters to the politically homeless was that they were like, this is what I hate about centrism. These people don't stand for really anything. And they don't even know what they stand for. They're just kind of all over the place reacting. And I I feel guilty of that sometimes. I have to really ask myself, what do I stand for? What hills will I die on? Where does that kind of leave me? But it's it's not just the fault of the individual voter that you have these horrible choices. We're not being given very great options in terms of having to choose leaders often. And So people, of course, are sick of voting for like the lesser of two evils or just opting out or voting third party, even though that feels a lot like a waste. And it's I don't know, I'm so I think I got a lot of letters post George Floyd because that really red pilled thousands of millions of people, I think, in that respect that they had been. Missing graduations, funerals, weddings, life, restaurants shuttered, businesses closed down, kids home from school. And then suddenly the approved message was like, all right, go protest. It was like, what? Excuse me? That just blew people's minds. And I was I thought for sure Trump was going to win again. I really did. I thought for sure he was And some of it, too, is my own factory settings. I come from a very dysfunctional upbringing, and I think I I overestimate the average person's tolerance for chaos. Mm. I, I have a high tolerance for chaos. And when things are chaotic, I get pretty calm. And I'm like, this, I am like, the, this is fine meme. 
<laughs> but most people don't like that. They don't they don't want to be on the hamster wheel of Trump's tweets and kind of at the mercy of all this, even if it really didn't affect their life, which is the strange thing, too. I feel like because of this pandemic, government wasn't it didn't really matter who you voted for president for a long time. It was a culture war. Sure. There were some things that were maybe affected. Sure. Like picking Supreme Court justices, for instance, and whatnot. But for the most part, the average American's life was not disrupted by their government until the pandemic. And suddenly it's every it's like all up in our business. <laughs> like, get, Go away. We didn't have to think about you guys for a long time. And now, I mean, one of the underreported stories is 100 school boards flipped to conservative in the last in the midterm elections. That's in in America. That's crazy. Wow. Like, that didn't get enough because all of these parents got activated and they were like, what is going on? We need some we need some representation on this school board mm-hmm. because our kids have been out of school and they're all getting speech delays. <laughs> Mm-hmm. It's just wild. So I think that you, you're seeing people. It is a strange time because the government has been so involved and suddenly is and there is like a very big, large group of people who seems to be OK with that. You know, the the left right now seems very like make government bigger. Government can kind of fix everything. And I'm like, I haven't, haven't you been to the DMV? <laughs> With a passport office in Canada, people camping out overnight. Like, (laughs) yeah, Canada seems nuts right now. It seems it's uh, talk about like shortages and what is going on up there with all in Victoria or something with all the kids getting sick. And it seems crazy. It's crazy times up here. And as you as you were talking about parents getting radicalized, I've certainly seen in my own circle so many parents who were left and had voted left their entire lives are now moving to the conservative side because of the school closures issue and, and related mm. issues in the pandemic. So it's it's interesting to watch for sure. And I think um and also, you know, around issues on the media, too, because I think people f- feel very let down by the mainstream media in this country. We just had the Public Order Emergency Commission looking into the use of the Emergencies Act during the trucker crisis. And there were a ton of things that the media got wrong. And when you have 300 hours of testimony over six weeks, you you really get a lot of information. There wow. was there was almost I mean, I didn't see any apologies from the media. I'm not aware of any self searching about what we got wrong. And this is something that really affected our country in, in a pretty dramatic way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's been very even the midterms I was surprised by, you know, I thought I was, again, under the impression that there there would be a red wave. I don't know that I was rooting for a red wave, but it felt that way to me. And this is where I have to just be aware of my own audience capture or my own distorted perception because my audience tends to be more just disaffected in general. But I think people, I actually weirdly kind of trust the electorate in some respects and that they they seem to strike a balance in ways that always surprise me. You know, I was glad that the people who were the 
craziest fringe election deniers were roundly defeated for the most part. And people like Blake Masters, who seems like, I'm like, who thought this was a good idea? You know, <laughs> a creepy, creepy dude who seems like, and I, I kind of thought he was going to win. So I was surprised that he didn't, you know, that that was surprising. I'm like, okay, maybe the voters have a better sense of creepiness than I, than I gave them credit for. And it seems like there was a, it's, you know, gridlock. So I think that we do have a very divided country right now too. And I really thought the school moms were going to come out raging and they did locally when you see what happened with a lot of these school boards. But again, you have this crazy, you know, the kind of shadow of Trump who's, oh, he's not really doing anyone any favors and people are still reacting to that. Like all of the insanity, every time he kind of pops up, people are like, eh, they seem to retreat back into voting more blue. Mm. So that that's in, it's interesting to me. I mean, I, I find it all fascinating. Everyone's like, it's going to be a civil war. But I, I actually think a lot of people voted with their feet and left. And I've said this before, just we live in such an interesting time of ideological and actual movement people are just moving ideologically all over the place but also all over america there's a lot of movement happening and and i do think we live in a time that will be studied if we you know carry on as a species <laughs> <laughs> how do you feel about the rise of independent media i think it's great i i'm all for it i but i've been all for the rise of all of the gatekeepers being told to like go kick rocks i just think it's been good for comedy i think it's been good this is why the stuff that elon's doing is so important because the promise of the internet was that this was a level playing field it's crazy to me that he responds to people on Twitter like he I mean, I had Noam Bloom on my podcast this week and he's like, it's so funny that he's like customer service. Like people will be like, hey, can you blah, blah, blah. And he's like, I'll get right on it. Like, <laughs> like Elon Musk. It's just funny. And I do think it's important because if you have your finger on the the scale and by scale, I mean algorithm, if you are tipping the scales in a direction in that very subtle way that people can't see, it's shadowy and you can feel it. And then they're telling you that it's not happening, which is basic gaslighting. And it's psychologically damaging because it makes people feel crazy. They're like, no, I feel like I'm being suppressed. Like I, I know when I when I've tripped some weird algorithmic wire, I just know mm, it. I can mm -hmm. see it on Twitter. You can, you're, you're not crazy to feel like something might be going on. And now we're seeing something was indeed going on. And that promise of giving people a voice and having this, the playing fields be leveled, you know, it doesn't matter if we get rid of the gatekeepers, if the gatekeepers are now algorithms that are deciding who gets elevated and who doesn't. That's, not the people. It's not in the hands of the people anymore. It's in the hands of these corporations that are trying to reshape society. It's freaking terrifying. Mm. So 
I mean, as much as I've always like kind of given Elon a hard time on my other podcast, Dumpster Fire, as my nemesis, I actually (laughs) am cheering for him and I'm bullish on Twitter because he does, you know, know how to inspire people to work. And I think for all the drama around laying people off, my feeling is that he just kind of trimmed all of the whiny crybabies and kept the people who wanted to work. (laughs) I mean, it seems like there were a lot of whiny crybabies who were working on Twitter. <laughs> I think there might have been a few. <laughs> yeah. And just lastly, Bridget, to close, you always make me laugh so much. And I, I think for like most of 2020, I don't think I laughed for that entire year. It oh, just no. was, was such a humorless time. I still a humorless time, but it's better than 2020. 2020 was humorless. Mm. Do you think comedy is going to come back? I don't think it ever went away. I think that I think that there's this great book um, that I read many, many years ago. And I just I remember a quote forever from I, I don't even know who it's by, but it was like for a culture that's decadent, the opportunity lies chiefly to the satirist and that we live in decadent times even with the shortages, we still have things better than humans have probably ever had them in the West in particular. And there are lots of problems. There's a lot of unrest. And that unrest is really interesting to me too, because you see these populations really pushing back against dictatorships and authoritarianism. And a lot of what people in the West are pushing back against in their own countries is this quasi- low level feeling of authoritarianism. You're seeing it in Canada, you're seeing it in the United States where people don't want the the media is controlled by the government and there's one message that's allowed that it's just like shady. That's shady. And I think that comedy, you know, guys like Tim Dillon, Andrew Schultz, they thrived in those years of like 2020, 2021, and they were pushing back. Louis still around. He's still making comedy. It's in spite of being canceled. Again, he still has an audience. He still can produce his own things. This is the free markets at work. And I've been doing fine. And I think that more and more, you know, humor for me is such a salve for all the chaos in my life. And I think that people just need it more than anything right now, because it is, it does have a feeling of chaotic times that we're living in. And I think you have to be able to laugh at the world and the kind of just absurdity of life. It's so important. And laugh at yourself, too. That's the other thing. The humorlessness that drove me so crazy came from that kind of smug sensibility of like, we know it's best for you, plebs. And it's like, you guys take yourself so seriously. Like, come down off your your pedestal and join the rest of us. We're having a decent time making memes and making fun of all of you, which is what we should be doing as plebs. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good place to leave it. Thank you so much for your writing and your podcasting. And, and thank you for this conversation. Thank you for having me. This is fun. Lean Out is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. 
If you value independent journalism, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com.